This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, May 6th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, Forest Service looks to take over via Ferrata Management, Kira Skinner steps in as Tourism Board Executive Director, a day in the life of a miner with Vinton Cole and a mountain weather forecast. The U.S. Forest Service is looking to incorporate the Telluride Via Ferrata into its trail system. This is an amazing recreation resource uh, that was built by uh, climbers and outdoor advocates, gosh, maybe 20 plus years ago. Um, But in that time, uh, it has never been incorporated into the Forest Service trail system. That's Megan Eno, Norwood District Ranger for the U.S. Forest Service. Over the past decades, the Telluride Mountain Club and other guiding organizations have helped to maintain the route. Over the years, use on that route, as I'm sure many folks are aware, has increased significantly. In fact, I think the data from the Telluride Mountain Club from two summers ago showed upwards of 2,000 visitors a month, which is remarkable. And as that use has grown, what we're seeing are uh, some, some new challenges. Eno notes the access routes are eroding, parking is a challenge, and information about the route could be improved. She says something needs to be done. There isn't really an option to just ignore it and allow it to continue um, operating the way it has. The Mountain Club and the Outfitter and Guide community have done a phenomenal job maintaining this resource, but with its increasing use and the potential need for an upgrade to the infrastructure, I don't think it's fair to ask them to continue to, to maintain that on their own. It is, it is a public resource on government lands, and I think it's a fair expectation that the government has a role in maintaining it. With that said, Heidi Lauterbach, director of the Telluride Mountain Club, hopes the Via Ferrata will maintain its historic essence. Telluride Via Ferrata is really unique in the fact that it was built and then realized So many Via Ferratas now are, they go through, you know, an approval process and then are built to certain standards. And in the U.S., the standard for a Via Ferrata falls more in line with, like, um, an amusement park ride or a zip line. And Telluride's is more in line with, as an example, Via Ferratas that were built over in Europe and have this, like, great history, you know, hundreds of years. And so from our perspective, we are hopeful that this process won't change the route and that it will that it will um, uphold the history and the uniqueness of Telluride's Via Ferrata. According to Eno, the Forest Service doesn't plan to dramatically change the system and infrastructure that currently exists. We don't have the desire to make significant changes to the infrastructure. We do want to um, make sure that they're built to, to typical um, via ferrata and ropeway standards, but we don't intend to drastically change it. So I think the reasons that people are concerned is, is it going to change how we access it? Are we going to have to pay a fee or hire a guide? Um, And the short answer is no. Next week, the Forest Service and the Mountain Club will host a community meeting to discuss bringing the Via Ferrata into Forest Service management. Eno adds, it isn't a snap decision. She says the agency, local governments and organizations have been discussing the Via's future for 10 years, trying to figure out who's the best steward for the trail. In fact, bringing the Via Ferrata into Forest Service management is one of a kind. All other Via Ferratas on Forest Service system lands are managed 
but under special use permits, typically within ski area permit boundaries. So this would be the only Via Ferrata in the system that's just part of the uh, general inventory that the Forest Service itself manages, maintains, um, and allows general public use for. So it, it, it is a different way of doing it, and I think it took time to get folks on board to say, yes, this is the right thing to do. The Forest Service and Telluride Mountain Club will hold a community meeting to discuss incorporating the Via Ferrata into the Forest Service system. Lauterbach says she's keen to hear from members of the community who are passionate about the issue. We want to hear from the community because as the Mountain Club moves forward in this process of understanding what next steps will be, we really want to represent the community in our comment letters and um, make sure that everybody's voice here in Telluride is heard as the next steps move forward. The community meeting to discuss the Via Ferrata will take place on Wednesday, May 11th from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on Zoom. The Telluride Tourism Board has a new executive director. Kira Skinner is stepping into the role effective immediately, the board announced on Friday. I'm thrilled to take on this role and excited to collaborate with the community and our partners to shape plans for the future. We have a great team of longtime locals here at the TTB and we're ready to evolve with the needs of the community. Skinner joined the tourism board in 2010 as the director of marketing and public relations. She says the role of the board now looks a lot different from when she started. You know, when I started with the tourism board back in 2010, we were starting the recovery process from the recession. So we really focused on marketing the destination to give the economy a needed boost. Um, Now, as we are in the pandemic recovery phase, um, there's a heightened sense sensitivity to tourism. Um, We have really shifted our priorities to more of a destination management um, and sustainable tourism role. Skinner adds moving towards sustainable growth for the community is a balance. You know, we really want our businesses and our economy to thrive, but we also want to respect um, the fact that, you know, our community needs Space and um, we're a small community. Dan Jansen, chair of the tourism board, says that mindset is what makes Skinner a perfect fit for the role. Uh, she's a longtime local. She raised her family here. Uh, she wants this to be a sustainable uh, town. Um, she understands marketing and tourism. Uh, She really understands there's a balance here we're trying to achieve. As the tourism board moves into a new era, Jansen and Skinner note the tourism board is looking to collaborate with the community. We're really looking to to have conversations, you know, with elected officials and with community members um, about how they envision sustainable tourism. And what I'm looking forward to is really um, taking, you know, all of their thoughts and putting those those thoughts into action um, and really benefiting the community. They emphasize transparency from the board is key. Outside of her work at the Tourism Board, Skinner volunteers as a member of the Palm Arts Board, the International Promotions Committee of the Colorado Tourism Office. She also acted as public information consultant for San Miguel County in the early days of the COVID pandemic. Skinner lives in Telluride with her husband, Matt, and their two children, Kyle and Camille. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. You can't touch this. The school year is coming to a close, as are spring sports. 
This week on A Day in the Life of a Minor, Telluride High School's Fenton Cole wraps up the JV lacrosse season and looks forward at varsity lacrosse and soccer. Have a listen. This is Fenton Cole on your sports update. My junior varsity lacrosse team won against the Frida Wildcats 5-2, securing another winning season. However, when we had a home game against the Glenwood Springs Demons, it was really cold and it was hailing nonstop. So I ended my season on the spot, avoiding a 6-5 overtime loss. Though my team finished with four losses, I finished my season with only three. I would like to go ahead and thank Grayson Fertig and Daniel Tweet for another excellent season on the field, and I can't wait for my third and final season of lacrosse. Boys Varsity Lacrosse won 7-6 in regulation against the Demons and have secured their spot in the tournament. If they win against Durango and Grand Junction, they will move to a higher rank in the tournament. Right now, they are 7-4 and four and are hoping to go 9-4 and four or 8-5. and five. Let's go, Miners! Girls Varsity Soccer got shut out by the Delta Panthers 4 to nothing, and had an away game against the Ignacio Bobcats. They won that one 9 to nothing. If they lose against the Crested Butte Titans but win against the Del Norte Tigers, they will make the tournament. But if they win both games, their tournament seed will be very high. Girls Varsity Lacrosse lost to the Dus lost to the Dawson Mustangs 15 to 5. They are 4 and 7 and are ineligible for the playoff tournament. Hopefully next year they will do better. The weather report for Saturday has some clouds with moderate winds and temperatures ranging from 41 to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Perfect weather to play lacrosse. Perfect weather for the playoffs. This is Fenton Cole reporting live from Telluride High School and we'll see you next week. Avian flu has come to the western slope. The avian flu is a virus um, that is an influenza virus. Um, and this one, H5N1, is the specific strain of this type of influenza, which originated from birds. That's Grace Franklin, public health director for San Miguel County. Last week, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment identified a human case of avian flu in Montrose County. The man worked at a commercial farm. It is the first human case of the flu in the United States and only the second in the world. The specific individual that um, tested positive, um, it sounds like they had mild symptoms, um, but got tested because of the high risk um, nature of their work. Um, and then tested positive for this um, uh, virus, was provided treatment, and is doing fine. The case comes after a number of birds tested positive for the flu. The state recently euthanized a flock of 60,000 birds in Montrose County to prevent further spread between birds. While avian flu can be deadly for birds, Franklin notes there's no need to stress about the human case, at least for now. We haven't seen high transmission from bird to person, and we haven't seen any person-to-person -person transmission. And so that's really the big concern is once other humans can start passing it to others, that can have bigger implications similar to our um, current COVID response. But she encourages individuals to make smart decisions when around birds. If you see a sick bird, um, 
don't touch it with your bare hands, right? Um, call animal control or um, use proper protection like gloves, a mask, goggles, just to keep fluids out of the way, because um, that's how um, the virus transmits. Franklin adds, if you have been in close contact with birds and feel symptoms, contact public health or your provider. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention note the avian flu does not present a food safety risk. Poultry and eggs are safe to eat when handled and cooked properly. The San Miguel Authority for Regional Transportation is looking to identify and address gaps in service for older adults and those with disabilities. To get a better understanding of where the gaps are, SMART is holding a number of community meetings. The transit body will hold listening sessions on May 10th in Natarita at the Natarita Community Center at 11.30 a.m. and in Norwood at the Lone Cone Library at 1.30 p.m., also on the 10th. There will be meetings in Placerville at the Schoolhouse at 11.30 a.m. on May 11th and at Mountain Village Town Hall at 5.30 p.m. on May 10th and 1.30 p.m. on May 11th. Spanish interpretation will be provided. As winter turns to spring turns to summer, roads in southwest Colorado can take a beating. The U.S. Forest Service is asking recreators to help protect public lands by staying off wet roads and respecting road closures. As snow melts, the runoff takes the path of least resistance, which is often a ditch line or a road. While the Forest Service notes the roads are prepared to handle increased moisture, they can get soft, and driving on them creates ruts. That ongoing damage can lead to a number of negative outcomes, including erosion, wildlife habitat damage, and a loss of access due to travel becoming too hazardous. Colorado lawmakers are on the verge of passing a bill to address a spike in fentanyl overdose deaths. As KOTO Scott Franz reports, the Senate is rejecting a push from prosecutors to make it a felony to possess smaller amounts of the drug. The law would instead make it a felony to possess at least one gram of the drug. It would also create tougher penalties for people who deal it and spend tens of millions on treating addiction. Senator Pete Lee of Colorado Springs says it would be inappropriate and deadly to criminalize low-level possession. If we move into draconian zero-tolerance, I don't think we get the results that we want. Many Republicans want to make it a crime to possess any amount of fentanyl. The Senate gave initial approval to the bill on Thursday evening. It faces one more vote in the Senate before both chambers will come together and try to agree on a final version. I'm Scott Franz at the State Capitol. Backcountry flying is taking off in the country, and a small but growing number of pilots are helping to upkeep historic dirt runways that dot southeastern Utah. KZMU's Justin Higginbottom takes to the skies to learn more about the growing hobby. Gary Hilly's job as a mechanic keeps him focused on the ground during the week, but when he's free, he heads above southeastern Utah. There. I'm in his 2C plane. It's called an experimental Super Cub. It's lightweight, able to take off and land with only a few hundred feet of runway. We're flying over slot canyons and mesas, heading south with Canyonlands National Park in the distance. So all these orange dots are runways around us. But we're probably going to go um, either to Mineral or Horseshoe. His phone is open to a map with dozens of orange dots within about a 15-mile radius. Those are backcountry runways. 
These are from the region's mining days, mostly uranium. Miners would use them to bring in supplies or labor. Right now we're headed towards the Green River. There's around 300 backcountry runways in Utah, mostly in the southeast, and many in Bureau of Land Management areas. This is the Mineral Bottom airstrip, which was associated with two mines, one being right here and then one further upstream up this road right there. We pass unfazed cows, some wild burrows that look up curiously, and a couple antelope trying to race us. But no humans, which is the point, says Hilly. Backcountry flying is a great way to get away from the crowds quickly. I use way less fuel flying there than I do driving there. And I can get out there and do a hike and get back in four or five hours, you know. Hilly is one of a growing number of backcountry flyers taking lightweight fixed-wing aircraft into the wilderness. Here's Roy Evans. He's a commercial pilot and president of the Utah Backcountry Pilots Association. The general aviation industry has expanded purely just in this world because the kind of airplanes that people fly into the backcountry, those markets have been exploding for the last 10, 20 years. He says there's new options for lightweight planes and training. This type of flying has been around for a long time, shown by these miners' runways. And in Alaska, it's some residents' only option. But social media has helped introduce the hobby to a new generation. He says local officials have even reached out to him for help in drawing flyers to their county. We really want to get in on this backcountry thing. You know, what do we have to do to put an airstrip in our county? And I'm like, well, there's actually 40 already <laughs> and they're widely used. He says his group has around 900 online members. They will share trip reports and details on the condition of remote runways. The one thing that's really interesting about flying in the backcountry is that the people you'll meet alongside these airstrips are from all over the world. We've met people from Germany that were out here flying around because America provides them so much more freedoms with aviation than other countries out there. But he says not everyone is as stoked on the hobby. Grant County commissioners submitted comments to the BLM with concerns about noise in some management areas. Evans says compared to other motorized vehicles, backcountry flying is pretty unobtrusive. The airplane only makes noise for those brief moments where it's coming into land. And then when the airplane's on the runway, we, we're shut down. We push the airplane into our parking spot. Kaya Marienfeld is with the conservation group Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance. She says as the hobby expands in the area, it could run up against other wilderness uses and values. It's just a question the same as it is with another motorized vehicle like a Jeep or a UTV or a motorbike. You're making sure that you are in the places that are the best suited for that kind of impact. Some historic runways in the San Rafael Swell were challenged after that area became a designated wilderness. And she says enforcement can be hard. Airspace is extremely hard to regulate. Land management agencies don't have a lot of sway or say over FAA regulations, over what things can and can't happen, however many feet off the ground, depending on where you are. She says there's great places where this kind of flying makes sense. But if you are a visitor or if you are wildlife out in one of these ecosystems and a plane flies overhead, it does substantially change the experience that you're having when you're out there. Back in the skies with Hilly, he tells me he tries to teach those pilots that are new to the area. And that's one of the things I try and educate a lot of pilots that come to town about, like, what's sensitive for us. But, like, guys love to fly the Green River, like, right on the water. But right now it's full of canoers and stuff. So really not a good idea. We land at the Horseshoe Canyon airstrip. The runways have stayed largely intact in the desert climate, although vegetation is very slowly encroaching and the rare flood can wash away these bits of history. Hilly spends his free time maintaining the runways. 
we'll come out and clear the turnarounds and the parking and the camping areas and haul the ash from the fire pits out, stuff like that. He'll haul out trash that's blown in, sometimes 50-year-old cans of beans left over from the mining days. Right now, he's using a metal rake he made himself and left out here for others to use. And we'll just, you know, you can take it and smooth out some ruts or chop some weeds or whatever you need to do. He says with the privilege of being able to access these runways, there's a responsibility to keep them safe. It's needed. He thinks the area will continue to attract more pilots. Like we're the mecca for mountain bikers, we're also the mecca for backcountry flying. And that comes with pluses and minuses, you know, with... With more people on the river every year, there's more people in the air as well, and more bikers, more razors, more of everything, and that's just, that's the reality of living in a resort town, really. But he thinks it's manageable. Today, on a windless day and peak tourist season, I didn't notice another plane. We can get everyone to kind of be respectful of each other and consider their point of view. You know, they're, they're here to have fun, we're here to have fun. So far, he thinks there's enough space for everyone, in the sky and on the ground. Justin Higginbottom for Rocky Mountain Community Radio. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around 40 degrees. Saturday should be mostly sunny during the day and mostly cloudy at night. The high is in the mid-60s with a low around 40. Sunday expects sunny skies with a high near 60 degrees. Sunday night should be mostly clear with a low around 40. This has been the news for Friday, May 6th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. And now, a personal commentary. Hello, Coto listeners. This is Carissa with EcoAction Partners, the region's sustainability nonprofit. I'm here to highlight the community engagement and policy section of the Regional Climate Action Plan. Snuffles Energy Board and EcoAction Partners felt it was important to highlight actions around community engagement and policy within our Climate Action Plan. Reaching our regional emissions reduction goals will not happen if we solely rely on external forces to reduce our carbon footprint. Individual actions make a difference, and we need to step up as a community to prioritize policies and partnerships that move us towards our goals. Two of the actions we identified within the community engagement and policy section are, one, to participate in state level organizations to drive regional clean energy and greenhouse gas emissions reduction, and two, to consider greenhouse gas emissions as part of all decision-making processes. Utilize a greenhouse gas impact assessment tool if available to quantify greenhouse gas emissions or sequestration impacts. Visit our website, ecoactionpartners.org CAP, to see what other objectives were identified as important in the community engagement and policy section, and give us your feedback through our survey. Thank you. Opinions broadcast over KOTO are those of the speakers. You are also invited to express your views after the news or on access each weekday at around 4 p.m. If you would like to comment, please contact a staff person here at Koto. We encourage you to speak out on important public issues.